Good morning. I had the benefit last week of one of your fellow members coming and um, expressing to me how excited they were to start this study in the book of Philippians. And she challenged me with something that I would actually like to challenge you all with. I thought it was a, a worthwhile comment that I thought needed to be shared. But in the past, she's been so blessed by this book, um, as I'm sure many of us have. It's wonderful to come back to it and look to such great encouragement for us during the days that we live in. But she said, how wonderful it would be if we as a church made some type of individual commitment to memorize passages of this book as we work through it. You know, the psalmist says, he said that to hide my wor- your word in my heart in order that I might not sin against you. So for whatever it's worth, I'd like to challenge you to think about that challenge in and of itself. Could you perhaps look to one paragraph per chapter? Maybe it's only one verse. 127, perhaps, like we discussed last week as our theme verse, that we would be found as living a life worthy of the gospel. But I definitely think that if we applied ourselves to specific verses or passages, or may I even say the entire book, Some of you may be able to do that. It would be extremely fruitful to you as we progress through the exposition of this book. So I leave that with you and the Holy Spirit individually for you to consider. So, a little bit of review from last week. We discussed two primary encouragements as a whole for this letter and two primary foundations, those two primary encouragements being a call to unity and a call to rejoice in suffering and opposition, and those two primary foundations of the letter as a whole being the gospel of Christ and the fellowship of Christ. You might recall how we discussed as well that this Christian life that we live is very difficult. You'll recall that I used a quote from Pastor Stephen Lawson where he said, paraphrasing, that this life is not just difficult, it's impossible in and of ourselves. We need the power of Christ. I made the argument last week that this inherent desire of man to be autonomous, to be in control, ultimately leads us to failure. It's a part of our sinful nature. Why do we wrestle with this egregious sin? I stated last week, it started in the garden. When Adam decided to live a life independent of God's standards. If you're like me, you feel the weight of this sin. To live as though we have it all under control. As human beings, we were called in Genesis chapter 1 to be fruitful to multiply, to go forth and subdue the earth. However, we would also be wise to remember the principle of Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The desire for man to autonomously plan his steps 
will always inevitably lead to suffering, opposition, and failure. In the end of chapter 1, we see how we as Christians, the church at Philippi, we've been called to suffer. Paul says in 129, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That being said, why do we feel often as though we are adequately prepared to endure this suffering in opposition within our own power? Speaking for myself, why do I at times go forth with confidence and boldness as if I have the perfect plan in order to achieve the results that I desire? Is it because I've thoroughly planned out all the details? And I have often. And I'm trusting in my own abilities? Unfortunately, at times, that's a reality. Mind you, I know, you know, it's impossible without the power of Christ. What ultimately gives us confidence prepares us to rejoice in suffering and opposition, to pursue unity with a gospel focus. The answer is found in an intimate and personal relationship with Christ, one that is devoted to a life of prayer. The early 19th century pastor, William G. Scroggy, he pastored at Spurgeon Metropolitan London Baptist Church, He said, a prayerful life is a powerful life. A prayerless life is always a powerless life. God has left us with his inherent, inspired word in which he speaks directly to us through it. Moreover, the veil has been torn and we have direct access to him in the same manner that we would have access to our closest friends. And relatives. Throughout Scripture, we have multiple opportunities to examine the topic of prayer, to gain insight and application. Last week, I had the opportunity to speak with some of the team. Perhaps you're still in this room. As we discuss the prayer of Hannah, as we read through the Psalms, we see incredible examples of prayer. Perhaps it's Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 or even our Lord's Prayer. It's essential for us. In our message for today, we will examine Paul's opening of this letter and several attributes that lead to a prayer of thanksgiving. It's my hope that we might look into the heart of Paul in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, that we might see how Paul's confidence in the Lord And his affection for people drove him to pray with specific substance. Furthermore, that we might seek to apply this to our question for today. That is, how might we pray for the church? If we are going to run after unity rejoice in suffering and encourage each other during these dark days, 
prayer will be an absolute priority. Three attributes of Paul's life, taken from chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, will serve as encouragements for us in the same manner that it did so for the church at Philippi. Would you stand with me, please? As we read our passage for today, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. Our first attribute today is a prayer of confidence. A prayer of confidence immediately following Paul's introduction in verses 1 through 2. Look again with me at verses 3 through 6. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus confidence or a lack thereof is most certainly a great motivator for us in prayer the lack thereof perhaps a great deterrent after this gratitude of remembrance look at what he states in verse 4 he says always offering prayer with joy for you all now it might be easy to pass over this word always However, the word itself communicates the level of commitment and confidence that Paul has in prayer. We know in 1 Thessalonians how he speaks of praying without ceasing. Or in 2 Timothy, he speaks of praying night and day. There are many reasons that are often offered for why Christians do not prioritize prayer whatever the reason must be whatever it is we must by god's grace strive to grow in that commitment and confidence that being said 
It's one thing to verbally express confidence. It's another to know it by way of personal involvement. Paul says here in verse 5 that his prayers are in essence strengthened by their participation in the gospel. This word participation refers to a fellowship or an intimate association. Herein lies one of the connections to what we discussed last week in the primary, one of the primary foundations, this fellowship of Christ. The sense here is that Paul and the church are intimately connected in the dissemination of the gospel. In chapter 4, we will see some of that connection, a clear financial partnership that took place between their gospel efforts. Whether it is financial or physical partnership of service, this type of connection most certainly serves to encourage and promote prayer in confidence. Some of you I've already seen as way of illustration and example in our ABFs how we as a body are even taking up an initiative to promote missionary captains, if you will. Now, why would we do that? Why would we desire to place before you missionaries in order to connect and relate with you. There's a reason. We desire to produce confidence in you to pray for them. And we will see later to connect emotionally, affectionately with them. Now, when it comes to the ultimate confidence, verse 6 provides it. Look again at verse 6. For he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, in regards to this great truth that he is communicating, which instills ultimate confidence, I need to make a distinction. One perhaps that is small but yet profound for us in some respects men have often looked to certain concepts within scripture as sort of a dichotomy if you will a seeming contradiction in this case whether it be the human responsibility of man and the divine sovereignty of god scripture clearly teaches both unashamedly What are we to say? Can we fully grasp these dual truths that seem to be contradictory? No. We are finite. God is infinite. However, one thing is certain. We must strive to embrace the tension. Understand the benefits of both through obedience and dependence upon what God's word says to us. In verses 3 through 5, Paul's confidence and prayerful attitude are rooted in this intimate association or partnership of fellowship, human responsibility. We're called 
to unite and connect with the body. That is our responsibility. As for us, do we desire that with all our hearts to pursue this partnership, this fellowship in the gospel? We will see in chapter 2 that he calls the church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. However, if our focus ever becomes too focused on our human responsibility, we will fail to experience the ultimate confidence, that which only comes from God alone. He is the one that orchestrates the beginning from the end. The sovereign nature of our Lord. Look again at verse 6. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you will, The verb here conveys a state of being, almost as if to say that his confidence was grounded in an actual state of affairs, as actual as one plus one equals two. What produces confidence such as this? God and God alone is the ultimate first cause and perfecter of completion when it comes to salvation. What God has began in His people, He will bring to completion. That is most certainly an ultimate confidence. Left to ourselves, we would fail. Paul further communicates this truth in what is commonly referred to as the golden chain of redemption. Romans 8, verse 30, he says, And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Have you ever watched a sporting event and knew beforehand that your team was the victor? No stress, no stress, no anxiety, just a quiet confidence that the outcome has already been determined in your favor okay i have to admit at times for me it's not a quiet confidence as you seek to prioritize prayer find your ultimate strength and the reality that victory is certain and i might add whether in this life or the next The second attribute is a prayer of emotion. Theodore Roosevelt laid claim to a quote that I'm certain that many in this room will remember. He said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Such a profound and true statement in many respects. That being said, I'm sure we all would agree that it's much easier to pray when we are emotionally connected and invested in individuals. In considering our question today, 
how might we pray for the church? One component of that answer pertains to becoming more emotionally invested in the church as a whole. Listen to Paul's emotion for this church in verses 7 and 8. He says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, at times, emotions can most certainly lead us astray. However, this is not the type of feelings that Paul is speaking of. This word here, feel, actually communicates an emotion with a specific opinion. We will see next week that Paul demonstrates that, demonstrates that there is a right way of thinking and a wrong way of thinking. The point is, is that deep emotion combined with right thinking certainly serves to encourage us in a life committed to prayer. Why is it right that he feels this way? He says in the text, because I have you in my heart. Proverbs 4.23 reads, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Paul, within the context of right thinking, held this church deep in his heart. Why was that the case? Because, verse 7 says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, they were partakers of grace with him. A little later in chapter 4, we will see that he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. This verbiage here is very similar to what we saw in verse 5. Partakers of grace. Participation in the gospel. This foundation of a fellowship of Christ is vital, essential, and it continues to be on display. As we all strive to defend and confirm the gospel in a similar manner, our emotional attachments to the body of Christ that the Lord has placed us within will drive us to more intimate, intentional, confident, dependent prayer. In verse 8, that emotional attachment continues. Look with me. He says, for God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love this phrase, long for. The word is extremely emotional. Communicates a great affection or a yearning love. Peter uses the same word in the context of speaking how a baby yearns for the milk that he or she receives from his mother. Moreover, do not miss the simple words that follow this long for. He says, I long for you all. 
I've made reference to this several times in the past as well as last week. That Paul throughout this letter uses this plural you in the Greek to speak corporately as a whole to the church. And even here for more emphasis, he says, I long for you all. This continues to be a focus throughout. Can I challenge you for a moment as your pastor? Who do you long to see here at Miriam Christian Chapel? Who do you long to see and connect with? Is it only your circle of friends? And please don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with having a circle of friends. Christ himself had an inner circle. However, when is the last time that you took a step outside of your box pursuing other brothers and sisters in Christ within this church? How can we become a more powerful praying church And not a powerless one, as William Scroggie stated. By the grace of God, I pray that we become more emotionally invested and connected with as many people as possible in this church. That's a challenge for us all. It will enhance our relationships. It will enhance our intention and focus as we seek to live a life full of powerful prayer. A life that can rejoice in suffering and opposition. A life that is pursuing together unity. Why would we do that? That we might have the affection of Christ Jesus. As the text says. The early 18th century revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote the following in his work, Religious Affection. Listen to the practical application of this when we consider how we are more emotionally connected and invested into this body as a whole. He says, Religion consists much in holy affection, but those exercises of affection which are most distinguishing of true religion are these practical exercises. Friendship between earthly friends consists much in affection. But those strong exercises of affection that actually carry them through fire and water for each other are the highest evidences of true friendship. Edwards stated that it was those strong exercises of affection that carried them through fire and water. As we consider our present context and the difficulties that we've been called to live in, we need more affection and emotion and connection within this body if we are to persevere in victory by the grace of God. Emotional affection for the church at Philippi encouraged Paul to pray always for his dear friends. How is God calling you today 
to demonstrate a focused emotional affection for the church as a whole here at Miriam. I would hope that it begins with intentional pursuit of more intimate connections and covered by dependent and confident prayer. Our human responsibility to pursue with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength connections and affection while confidence trusting in God alone. So, we've looked at two attributes, a prayer of confidence, a prayer of emotion. Let's look at our final attribute, and that is a prayer of substance, a prayer of substance. It's one thing to say that prayer is strengthened through our confidence in Christ. It's another to say that affectionate, emotional connections help us drive us to more powerful prayer. What about the substance of prayer? How might we pray for the church? Our question, specifically. In the close of this introduction, Paul prays with the substance that is magnificent for the church at Philippi. Have you ever felt as though, what am I to pray? Look with me at verses 9 through 11 as a wonderful example. In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's substance. That is priority of prayer. Allow me to challenge you again as your pastor. Is your prayer life more concerned with the material and natural rather than the spiritual? And as, as I alluded to previously, don't hear what I'm not saying. We pray for the natural. We pray for physical ailments if it be the Lord's will to be healed. However, May we echo words such as this. John MacArthur says, The physical, in a sense, though it is material, is immaterial. Paul here within these verses prays for spiritual sanctification with specific substance. Let's take a look at several of those elements of substance. Look at verse 9. He connects love with knowledge and discernment. Love must never be devoid of knowledge. Unfortunately, that is the message that we hear within many of the churches of our day. They speak a message of love absent of truth. As Ephesians 4.15 will say, we must speak truth in love what is this knowledge 
It's interesting to note that of the 20 times that this word is used in the New Testament, 16 of those 20 times refers to the knowledge of God's will or the knowledge of God himself. When we combine this with the word discernment, we have a clear picture of what he's speaking to. This word discernment is only used this one time in the entire New Testament. But with the help of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament and other Greek sources, we have a better idea of what discernment means from a biblical perspective, from that culture's perspective. One might view the term as a sensual perception or wisdom with moral discrimination. All that to say, Paul prays specifically with substance that these believers might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that prayer helpful? Look again at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. If we are praying with substance, desiring for the church to know God's will, we must be able to judge what is genuine and what is of more value. This is in essence exactly what is being communicated in the words that Paul uses when he says approve and excellent in verse 10. Thomas Constable states the following concerning discerning what has more value. Most of the choices that a spiritual believer faces are not between morally good and morally evil things, but between things of lesser and greater value. The things that we choose because we love them reflect how discerning our love really is. Could that serve as an example for us? How we might pray for the church? Of course it could. And then, why would we pray in that manner? Paul did so because he desired that the church might be found sincere and blameless. Without hidden motives. Unashamed before the Lord of glory. That is substance. That is specific focus in how we pray. As we draw to a close in verse 11, Paul continues to pray with substance while circling back to the sovereign nature of God, our ultimate confidence. Notice how he uses the passive voice here when he says, having been filled. The focus here with this voice and tense of this verb is to communicate that the subject, the church, receives the action. The sovereign nature of God. The action here being the fruit of righteousness, which he also states for emphasis, comes through Jesus Christ. Once again, confidence abounds in that God is the first cause 
of every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father above. What does that look like for us? We mentioned Philippians 2.12, what it looks like for us when it comes to human responsibility, that we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we consider this sovereign nature of God. 2.13 speaks clearly. The next verse following that human responsibility, he says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then finally, as he closes the prayer, he exalts the Lord in this wonderful, glorious, doxological fashion when he says to the glory and praise of God. As we consider our prayer life, is our focus upon 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that says whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, we do it all for the glory of God. As we pray for the material, do we pray that spiritual realities come to fruition because and for the glory of God alone? How rich and wonderful God's word is to us. He's communicating directly to us through his word. How will you respond? How will you communicate with him? How will you pray for this church as a whole? You can pray with confidence as we participate together in the gospel, as we trust in the sovereign nature of God, that he's working everything together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Are you concerned with the emotional connections, the affection of the body of Christ? Will we commit to step out of our boxes and pursue others in relationships? We're going to need to. Our circle of friends is not enough. Suffering and opposition awaits. We will be strengthened with our commitment to each other. Will you pray with specific spiritual substance? Yes, praying for the material. Yes, praying for those that are experiencing physical ailments. But ultimately focusing on that God would work through those circumstances to grow believers in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe not even believers, that God would work through those circumstances to draw people unto Him. As you think of this country, is your prayer only focused upon the natural that we all see, that we all pray at times, against? Or do we say, not my will, your will be done, Lord? The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it in whichever way 
he chooses or desires. I would paraphrase the end there. God is sovereign and he is in control. Pray with specific spiritual substance. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, as we come before you, we cry out as your people that your will would be done, that your name would be glorified in all of the earth, that you would grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would use us as beacons in a dark world. Lord, help us to be confident, not in and of ourselves, but in the power of Christ through prayer and dependence upon you. Lord, we need each other. You created the body to work in unison, to be in need of each other. You are the head of this body, but you also call us to be connected, to be emotionally and affectionately intertwined for your glory and for the benefit of your church. Lord, we pray with specific spiritual substance for our country, for our church, for our friends, for the world that we live in. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart, Lord. Help us to pray according to your word. Help us to hide that word in our heart in order that we might not sin against you and glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?